So this message is gospel-centered hope for a marriage in trouble. I don't know how much counseling you do, but I'm sure you counsel women uh, or couples in your church regarding their marriages. Well, that's because marriages are in trouble in America. According to a study done by Barna Group of Ventura, who interviewed a nationally representative sample of 3,600 adults, they found that the likelihood of married adults getting divorced is identical among born-again Christians and those who are not born-again. Among married born-again Christians, 35% have experienced a divorce. That figure is identical to the outcome among married adults who are not born again. That's one in three marriages. The study also cited attitudinal data showing that most Americans reject the notion that divorce is a sin. We as biblical counselors know that divorce is not a sin in many cases but approved of by God because of the hardness of heart of the offending party and for the good of the innocent party. We recognize that people will be married to those who do sinful things and will not repent. Adultery and desertion, the two grounds. So for the safety and well-being of the other person, God allows divorce. But what we're talking about here is divorce for non-biblical reasons. We've got a lot of work to do in counseling couples regarding their marriages from a biblical perspective and fight to keep the couples living for Christ and upholding their marriage vows by cleaving to each other for God's glory and start with ourselves as examples that they can follow. My purpose in this hour is to help you counsel the wife who's at her wit's end in contemplating a divorce because of what she considers a failed marriage. As we begin counseling our friend and listening to her story, it's good to look for these three things. And um, hopefully you have your notes there, which I gave you. Who is she? She is a saint. Bob mentioned this last evening. A holy one in Christ. Uh, Add this reference to your notes, Colossians 3.12. We are holy ones in Christ. Perhaps your counselee has forgotten her identity, who she is in Christ, and her purpose, who she was created for, her high privilege and calling. She may have forgotten that she has been set apart for her own good and God's glory. It's important to begin here because discipleship or counseling is much more than correction or reproof. It's also for encouragement, casting a vision, and building hope. Add another verse in there. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle or unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all. Determining the real need to address is very important. If a person's discouraged under the cares of life, you don't work with her the same way as someone who is openly rebellious. 
time needs to be spent with this person finding out what is underlying her discouragement. Does she feel all alone that God has forgotten her, that God is punishing her, that she's lost what she's been living for? She's disappointed with God. All of these things will help to reveal her view of God, who or what she's trusting in, the things in her life she's possibly turned into an idol. And they will tell you specifically where her faith needs strengthening. So you can point her not just to Bible verses that speak of God's presence and care, but stories like Ruth and Hagar, Esther, Joseph, um, that actually flesh out what that looks like. All of scripture becomes a resource. So encourage that woman as to her standing before God now. That will greatly encourage her. Get her to recount ways in which God has worked in her life over the years as his child. Secondly, she's a sufferer. We go through fiery trials. Um, add this scripture, Second Corinthians four, sixteen and 17. We go through light afflictions, although they don't seem light at the time. Um, this has to do with evil outside ourselves. This is the groaning of God's children over the pain in this life. Suffering is part and parcel of this life, the side of glory. Listen to gain a clear sense of the different circumstances at play in your friend's life and marriage that is hurting. What are the major stressors in her life right now? Has she been sinned against? How? Enter into her suffering as Christ does ours. Show sympathy and compassion. Review with her how this was not God's intention. The perfect world he created was ruined by sin back in the garden. And ever since, we've been living in the results of a fallen, broken world. This is an encouragement. God didn't attend, intend this. However, God is in his sovereignty has allowed these things and can use them for good and his glory in her life. More often than not, her suffering will be your entry point before her sin will. Thirdly, she's a sinner. We all sin. This is evil in ourselves. Add 1 John 1.10. If we say we have no sin, <clears throat> we're calling God a liar. As you listen to her story, her values and beliefs will be revealed that lead her to sinful words, actions, emotions, and actions. Motives will be revealed. This helps you discover the sins in her life that need to be addressed. How is she responding to these things? Her responses to these circumstances will reveal whether she's living within a biblical framework or not. Realize that when you disciple a friend who is simultaneously saint, sufferer, and sinner, you will need to prioritize where you need to start. You will confirm the identity of the saint, comfort the sufferer, and confront the sinner. All three have a place in counseling. Our number one goal, though, is to help our counselee grow into the likeness of Christ and bring God glory. 
Romans 8:29, Ephesians 4:17 to 32, and Colossians 3:1 to 17. Is that the goal of your counselee? If so, you can begin counseling. Now, I want to share a tool with you that you can use that shows how this whole process of change takes place. So, um, look at the, um, the blank diagram here, the blank one. The three trees diagram. And we're going to go through the blank one. And um, so if you want to take that out, one is filled in with uh, Diane, the uh, case study we're going to do. But right now we're going to use the blank one. You can use this with your friend. You can draw this on a napkin in, a, in the restaurant. Uh, it really is beautiful the way it shows the process of biblical change. And you can use it to help yourself with your own struggles. I do with mine. Oh, that was a throny response. Um, heart check. Or you can use it with your husband. <laughs> so... There are four parts, the heat, you see that, the sun, the tree of thorns and its root and consequences, the cross, the tree of fruit and its root and consequences. Uh, you say, where's the third tree? That's the tree on which Jesus died. That's the cross. So I'm going to uh, explain uh, each part. First, the heat. We find out what the situation is. It is a trial of life that can come in the form of a difficulty or a blessing. What are the circumstances affecting you? The details, when, where, with whom. This is where you wait to enter into their pain with sympathy and understanding. The heat can produce either thorns or good fruit. So uh, in most cases though, because we're sinners... Our first response is thorny. Sad, isn't it? Um, So the thorns are sinful responses to the heat. How you react to the heat can be actions, words, thoughts, fantasies, emotions. The bad root. At its root is something ruling the heart other than Christ. What do you want, expect, demand, crave, must have in order to be happy? This is an idol that must be uncovered and repented of. And then you see the consequences up there. What consequences do we reap from our sinful responses? This is a vicious cycle of folly, circle of folly. Then the cross, where we come for rescue to our crucified Savior who died and paid the penalty for our sins. You find out here, who is God in all of his holiness? What what has Jesus said and what has he done? 
for you relevant to your heat and you see how does he enter into your struggle you could draw a picture of the the word of God under the cross because you find out who Jesus is and what he's done in his word don't you so sometimes it helps to just to put the picture of the the word of God the cross is standing on the word As you look to Jesus, the Holy Spirit begins to change your heart. Then the good root. The Holy Spirit reveals truth to you about your heart and your situation that brings you to seek God in repentance and faith. You have a change of heart and mind to receive what the Holy Spirit reveals to you about your situation. We can't bypass this repentance, can we? When we come to the cross, he reveals our sin, and our response should be to repent. What rules your heart now? Fruit tree. The Holy Spirit gives you the faith and energizes you to respond with love and all the fruit of the Spirit as your Savior directs through his word. What should you do now in this situation? How can I obey out of a heart of love for my Savior? This is all good fruit. This is living a life conformed to the image of Jesus. Didn't he say by their fruits you shall know them? And then the consequences, what you reap for responding rightly. This is the gracious circle of wisdom. This is a picture of the process of how a person changes. And this is the aim of counseling to help your friend know Christ in all of life, including her struggles, and become like him, right? All right, let's see how this happens. So take your um, diagram of the uh, one titled Diane. And let's look at that together. Let's see how the spirit works change in her life from a thorn tree to a fruit-bearing tree. I'm going to go through this with you. The heat in Diane's life, and I've written it in for you, was that her husband was very unloving, to put it mildly. So you get the details. So you can understand and empathize with her, even begin to see her pettiness and selfishness. She's a woman who God brought across my path, a woman who had everything in this world's eyes. She lived in a mansion. Better than I've any friend I've ever had. Um, that she didn't go to our church, but she came to me because she knew we um, stood on the gospel and, and the word of God. Uh, she had lots of money to have the best of everything, but her marriage was falling apart. She had been to a psychologist, and he had recommended that she divorce her husband who was showing no interest in her, was being verbally abusive, not only to her, but to other members of the family, and was squandering their money on antique cars. She was continually in emotional turmoil. And when you hear her story, you're saying, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, she needs to get rid of this guy. Um, Your feelings are telling you that. But we know we can't be feeling-oriented. We have to go on God's word. Uh, So let's see how she's reacting to the heat, the bad fruit or thorns. 
She withdraws from him, not spending time with him. She has no interest in his antique cars that he's totally enamored with, buying many, many of them and going to car shows continually. She was always nagging him and arguing, demanding he get rid of the cars and spend more time with her and the kids, insisting on her own way, totally negative. Add to that angry, bitter, full of self-pity, fear, and self-righteousness. She was ungrateful for him, never thanked him for all the beautiful things he had provided. She was negative, depressed, crying a lot, all bad fruit, thorns. What's at the root of this bad fruit? Diane believed that her happiness was dependent upon having a loving marriage, her husband's love and undivided attention and devotion. All good things, right? But this desire was eating her up. It becomes bad when happiness depends on having them and when she will resort to her own sinful ways of getting them. Because her expectations of a good marriage were unfulfilled, she used all those responses as a form of manipulation to get her husband back, and it wasn't working. If only her husband loved her, her life would be worthwhile. That was her goal, and without it, life was meaningless. But is it wrong to crave a husband's love? No. But when this desire becomes her ultimate goal, it has become her functional God. It must not be above her love and devotion to God. He will have no other gods before him. Right? He's jealous of our love. All ungodly behavior, all our thorns, emanate out of a heart that has been captured by something other than Christ. Even good things can quickly morph and become replacements for God, functional gods, the things that you believe will make you happy. Often our desires aren't inherently wrong. Good things can go awry when they get bigger than my desire to please God. We want good things too much. I must have it or one of these three things. I'm going to sin to get it, I'm willing to sin to keep it, or I'm willing to sin if I don't get it. Got it? (laughs) I'm willing to sin to get it, I'm willing to sin to keep it, and I'm willing to sin if I don't get it. Elise Fitzpatrick says in her book, Because He Loves Me, that I mentioned earlier today, at the heart of every one of our sanctification problems are false worship and lies about the source of real happiness. The cross. And so, realizing her helplessness, she comes to the cross and turns to Jesus for rescue. In scripture, that's where we go, he assures her of his love, that he's with her, will never leave her nor forsake her, He is her savior who has come to rescue her from herself. He has allowed this, this trial for her good. He enters her world and understands her and what she's going through. He grieves with her over her broken marriage and would desire that her marriage be healed. 
she knows that he understands her. He suffered rejection and abuse in going to the cross. The night before his crucifixion, he accepts the cup of suffering. He loves those who are crucifying him. He gives his spirit so she can love as he does through this trial. This is the most important part of the process. This is when a person finds Christ in the situation, who he is, what he's done, and can do for her from scripture, from books, from a message, from you as her counselor. There's so much more here that the Spirit reveals ongoingly, not just in your one session with her. You're going to take her to the cross. And she's going to stay there over the weeks and months ahead. The good root. The life-giving spirit melts her heart as she sees what her Savior did for her. She thanks God for her Savior and for her husband and has new eyes to view him with compassion and to pray for him. As the spirit shows her his way from scripture, she repents of her fleshly way of trying to fix her marriage. Her nagging, arguing, demanding her own way. The Spirit shows her God's way, not withdrawing from, but dying to her own desires and taking an interest in what interests Him, putting Him first, showing love to Him, winning Him without a word, like 1 Peter 3 says. The Spirit also gives wisdom regarding his abusive speech and squandering of money if a time might come when she should seek help from the church. She may need to go Matthew 18 route with an elder. Um, She realizes that God has allowed this for her good and to bring him glory, so she accepts this trial as from his loving hand. Then good fruit. Diane isn't trapped by her circumstances by thinking, oh, if only I had a husband who loved me, then she could obey God. God's promises take the wind out of that argument, 1 Corinthians 10.13. That's our staple, isn't it, as counselors? There has no temptation taken us, but such as is common to man, what she's experiencing is common problem, but God is faithful. Who will not suffer her to be tempted above what she is able but will with the temptation give a way of escape that she may be able to bear it? He does provide a way of escape. He's changing her. He's changing her. She's getting the log out of her own eye, isn't she? She has that new heart that God put in her when she was born again and that's empowered by the Holy Spirit within her. And that's what gives us hope as a counselor because we know it's not our job to change this person or to fix this marriage. It's God's job and he can do it because she has his spirit dwelling within her. Because God has lavished his love and forgiveness on her, she's learning to love like Christ. She can glorify God in the conflict no matter what her husband is doing. She can make it her overarching desire to please God. Right in there, 2 Corinthians 5, 9. 
Paul said, whether at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. She's learning to depend on Christ for all she needs through this trial. His patience, kindness, peace to be worked in her. And his wisdom for each step to take. She's learning that she can trust her Savior and that his ways create the best environment for bringing about change. She finds peace and joy in knowing she is pleasing him and bringing him glory. And she's trusting him that he will ultimately redeem the very worst situations to accomplish his purposes for his glory. She can help others in similar situations. I, as her counselor, helped her think of ways she could seek to express love to her husband again. This love took place in ordinary, run-of-the-mill ways, which she had been neglecting. Funny, isn't it? (laughs) Just run-of-the-mill ways. Um, And when you get out of the habit of doing them, you need somebody to remind you. It was just be thoughtful of him. Welcome him home from work. Speak words of love to him. Tell him of your love. Submit to him. Make him meals he likes when he likes them. Watch programs he likes. Have attentive conversation. Opening up her life so her husband can see her own sin and God's grace and asking forgiveness Um, because she's going to mess up and be humble and ask forgiveness um, through the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit winning him without a word not withdrawing but dying to her own desires and taking an interest in his interests in his cars spend time with him and go to car shows with him praise him for who he is and for all that he has done for her in providing so abundantly for her material needs you would think that would come naturally she's living in this gorgeous home he's worked hard to provide but she hadn't been thanking him at all for any of that with Christ having the place of preeminence and since he is the source of her joy and peace guess what her joy returns so she's no longer depressed She prays for God's grace to love him physically because their sex life had gone by the wayside. Uh, So she sought to renew their love life. She asks the Holy Spirit to empower her efforts so that the love of Christ will be seen in her life. And if she tries to do this on her own and just womp it up on her own, um, Paul Tripp calls this fruit stapling. You know, you put up the fruit up there on the tree, but it didn't grow there naturally. It's not a fruit of the Spirit. And don't you think he's going to see the difference? He's going to think, oh, just another form of manipulation. She has to pray that this comes out of her heart, out of the love that God has put in her heart, first for him, and then the love that the Lord can give her for her husband that's real and heartfelt consequences well you can imagine the rest of the story after a few months she told me she had a new husband well I was kind of worried no (laughs) I was like yeah yay 
Praise the Lord. Uh, she assured me it was the same one. Um, he started loving her more than he ever had before. Their conflicts seemed to be resolved. The husband repented of his extravagance and ended up getting rid of the cars and devoting himself to her and the family. There was a healthy home environment for everyone. A life was lived that brings God glory. This is the gracious circle of wisdom. All praise to God. So I want to just camp out here on this uh, process of change. Um, I suggest you learn how to use it first with your own struggles and then to help others as you have opportunity. But do you see how the cross is central in this process? Pointing your friend to the cross to see Jesus, to see what he says and what he's done and will do as it relates specifically to our struggle. The cross, kept central, helps us avoid pride and self-righteousness over anything good that comes out of our life through our self-effort and reminds us that though we are weak, Christ has given us a new heart, an identity, and a safe place to deal honestly with sin. Mind you, this isn't a technique or a system. It's a process of seeking to become like Christ. And it's always under the canopy of grace. Christ's likeness is not a performance we are called to give before a demanding, tyrannical parent. But it's a life-affirming, soul-refreshing invitation to become persons of integrity, genuine, real. The persons God created us to be in his son. Change takes place as we are in relationship with Christ. Diane has been given a new nature with the potential for amazing change and growth because Christ lives in her. Galatians 2.20 is a great text for her to memorize. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the cross-centered life, the life that's been changed by Jesus Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension. We have to remember, he is there with the Father now, interceding for us on our behalf. He's ministering to us even now. A life that's lived in recognition that we need the cross of Christ in the process of becoming holy like Christ on a daily basis, moment by moment. That's what we want. She needs to meditate on God's goodness to her in the cross and resurrection and love God first above her husband. The relationship with her husband will only be what it should be when she loves God above all else. If God isn't in his rightful place, we will put ourselves in his place or our husbands or somebody else and it will be all about me or all about them. Paul Tripp writes, <clears throat> Love for others really begins, continues, and is daily motivated by love for God. When his purposes are more important than your desires, when his glory is more valuable to you than your temporary moments of glory, and when his agenda activates you more than your plan for you, you will be freed from your bondage to self-love and be freed to love others. It really is true. 
Our relationships need more than horizontal fixing. They need vertical rescue, and for that there is the ever-sufficient grace of a willing and patient Savior. This is the process of sanctification, of being more and more conformed to Christ's image. Everything we've been talking about plays a part in this pursuit. It's a lifelong process. There will always be conflict between the flesh or the sinful nature and the new nature. It's a constant process of putting off the old nature by renewing the mind through the gospel and putting on righteousness through the power of the Holy Spirit motivated by love. The Ephesians 4 passage can be used with this diagram that I've given you. So the sin or thorns... That in Ephesians 4, that's the put off. That's the sin that we need to put off. And you know, Paul says, put off bad speech. That's what Bob's speaking on in the other room, <laughs> this very passage. Um, and put on wholesome words that build up. So we're putting off the thorny, uh, sinful way. And we're renewing our minds. And Paul has just given the first three chapters of Ephesians with which to renew our minds. That's the gospel that we've been chosen of him from before the foundation of the world. And it's all of faith. It's all of him. We've been predestined for good works. And then we're to put on what pleases him, the fruit of the Spirit. That's the fruit tree. So you can use this um, to flesh out this or to uh, demonstrate this process in Ephesians 4, which is our go-to passage for biblical change. Um, If you've been in any biblical counseling classes. So, yes, it brought happiness to Diane, but that isn't God's primary motive for our transformation. God deserves our worship. His name is to be exalted. He created us to be worshipers. He alone is worthy to be known, loved, and worshipped. This is a quote, another quote from Elise, and she says things so well uh, from Because He Loves Me. She writes, Because he is God and perfectly holy, everything in him revolves around him and elicits worship from all creation. Luke 19.40, Jesus said, If these become silent, the stones will cry out. When we fail in holiness, we fail because we're not centered on him, orbiting around him. We're worshiping something else. We aren't believing in his goodness. We're creating other gods to worship. But God has made us to worship him, and he is transforming us so that we will worship in the splendor of holiness. 1 Chronicles 16.29 And then she points this out. Although worship is God's goal, he also has great regard for our happiness. He desires our worship because our happiness is inextricably tied to our worship of him. When we think on him, rejoice in him, and praise his glorious holiness, then and only then will we find the happiness we're seeking. What a blessing that he has tied our happiness to his glory. As we strive to put off all the loves that captivate our hearts, may we have this picture before us. 
infinitely joyous worship led by the Son, empowered by the Spirit for all eternity. I gave Diane assignments to hold her accountable to be in the Word, prayer, and application. And Hebrews 3, 1 uh, says that we would encourage one another day after day because of the hardening of our hearts. Um, so you can uh, look at that. I gave you a sheet of homework. Um, I have provided some of the homework I would use with Diane. Uh, you might have some other things and verses to study and meditate on and do that would be good. Um, I even thought of others uh, myself after I uh, sent that off. <laughs> we, um, you'll have favorite texts that you use to help people uh, and um, to help them meditate on God's word and pray it back to God for change. Um, add to that studying the life of Ruth and Hagar, Esther and Joseph would be good, which I thought of after I sent in that um, list. Um, the homework is to be in, done over several months as you work together. It's... and. Um, so, added to that, it's so important to pray. We want to pray with them, and they need to pray for God to work in their own hearts according to his word. And then we leave the results with him. You as a counselor, pray for your counselee. Uh, because if anything happens in our counselee's heart and life. It's a result of God's working. And we need to pray for that and claim the promises in John 15, 5 to 7 that Jesus made that if we abide in him and his word abides in us, we can ask what we wish and it will be done for us. And 1 John 5, 14 and 15 this is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the results that we have asked of him. So prayer is a key element in counseling. And then, ladies, celebrate the victories in thanksgiving to God for what he has done. What a joy to see the changes in Diane's life or in your friend's life. This is a time for rejoicing when she has evidenced real heart change and demonstrated new patterns of obedience through answered prayer. We're there to hold a party when a life is transformed. Bring out the bubbly, turn on the music, and encourage her to pass on to someone else the things that she has learned. You know that you've truly made a disciple when you see her growing in Christ-likeness and then using her gifts to serve others and making disciples herself. And God will use her. Praise God, we don't have to struggle through change all alone. We have each other to encourage us, hold us accountable. We've been designed to live in community with him and with one another. We as counselors need to encourage our counselees 
to get involved in the local church. Um, this woman didn't come from our church, but I encouraged her to get more active in her own local church, uh, in a women's study, to have that one another and accountability that goes along with it, um, and the fellowship and hearing the word of God um, on a regular basis. Now let me cover a few further questions. Diane's story was a textbook case. Everything worked out the way we would want it to. Does God always work that way in such dramatic ways? Well, you know, if you've been counseling for very long, you know that's not the case. But if he doesn't, he's still worthy of all love and honor, and his joy and peace can never be taken away. Trials in marriage can be tools in our lives to draw us closer to Jesus and make us more like him. What if Diane's husband never turned around? Elise writes in Helper by Design, and this is my favorite book on marriage, by the way, Helper by Design. She writes, even difficult marriages can free us from the love of the temporal, turn our eyes towards Jesus, and help us know him in the fellowship of his sufferings. In the middle of a hard marriage, it is important to remember that Jesus is with you. You are not alone. He knows your suffering. He's the one who endured a shameful cross, all for the joy that was set before him. He clung to the serendipitous truth that soon he would savor the great reward that his father had for him. And by faith, you can do the same. You can rest in his love and the promise of eternal bliss where you'll fully rejoice in the knowledge that your suffering was not random or trivial. There is an everlasting meaning to all you're going through. And the meaning is that he is sometimes without our even seeing how, glorifying himself. That's his promise in Romans 8.28. He's working it for our good and his glory. And this is what you want to encourage your um, counselee. Does a wife, uh, and then the next thing I want to talk about, does the wife respectfully confront her husband about a sin? Yes, because if he's a believer, he's your brother in the Lord, and other passages apply, like Galatians 6.1, which says we confront in a spirit of gentleness, knowing we too can be tempted. It depends on the situation. Some sins need to be confronted, and others overlooked and forgiven for the sake of winning him. God has given the wife the convicting power of true holiness. How is the salvation message preached to the unbelieving husband? Well, we know that Peter has given us that in 1 Peter 3 by submission and a calm attitude of trust in God, not by incessant nagging or pestering or scheming or beautiful clothes or hair. We can't talk our husbands into the kingdom being loving and submissive shows lack of fear, like Sarah, who was praised. She left things in God's hands. What if he claims to be a believer and is continuing to live in sin that she can't overlook? After she sought to win him without a word, she should follow out Matthew 18, seeking to restore him according to the plan there that Jesus gave the church. 
What if physical abuse is taking place? Nancy DeMoss Wilgamuth says in her excellent book, Adorned, uh, that's a great book. It's just come out recently on being a Titus II woman. She says, let me make clear that loving your husband does not mean brushing sinful behavior under the carpet or just holding everything inside when there are issues you and your husband are unable to resolve. In fact, that would be unloving. Hopefully, she would go to a biblical counselor. <laughs> she says they should go to a pastor or counselor for the biblical perspective, emotional and spiritual support, and help in determining the best course of action. She's, uh, Nancy says, The purpose is not to find someone to take your side against your husband, but to help them discern how to deal with his actions and evaluate their own heart and responses. And if their husband is breaking the law, or you or your children are being physically threatened or harmed, hard as it may be, you should contact local civil authorities and ask for their help. According to scripture, they are God's servants for your good. Romans 13.4 And the ACBC conference is coming up um, in October, first week of October. They're going to delve into these situations in detail and that will be very valuable. It's on abuse this year. In conclusion, as I said at the beginning, our number one goal in counseling is to help our counselee understand the purpose for which he was created in Christ, to worship and know God in all of life, and to bring him glory. The three trees diagram helps us understand the process of change. It's not simply behavior change that God wants. That leaves out the cross. God wants genuine heart change, change that happens through Jesus, change that happens when God shows us the root causes of our sin by his Holy Spirit, by coming in repentance to Jesus at the cross. He not only forgives, but he empowers. He actually energizes us to live a new way that formerly we never would have considered a new way of thinking, a new way of acting, a new way of living. And that, my friends, brings him glory and thereby fulfills the purpose for which we were created. To him be the glory and to him alone forever and ever. Amen. So let's close our time in prayer. Lord, uh, I, I pray that you will help us in this uh, counseling process to point our counselees to the cross. That's where their sin problem was taken care of and that's where we all get the power for the new life that you have for us. Loving our husbands through thick and thin and leaving the results with you to change them. And if that is in your plan or to give us the grace to continue to love them and forgive them and to uh, worship you alone and not the idol of having a comfortable and happy life because we know our greatest happiness lies in uh, that relationship with you and it will 
be going on for eternity. We thank you for the cross. Help us to uh, revel in all that you've done for us and all that you are for your love uh, that just um, is so overwhelming. Thank you for these women and their hearts to help others. Just make their lives fruitful for your kingdom. And we will praise and glorify you for all eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.